If you have your Bibles, turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're continuing our reading of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. I want to keep in mind, in all of your minds, just keep in, in the very front, that the letter that we're studying was a letter that was written to a church, and it was written to the whole congregation, and it was to be read to the whole congregation. The reason why I laugh is because some of the things that the apostle says in there, and some of the names that he points out, it must have been embarrassing, it must have been shocking, shameful even, to read out what he reads in public. Nevertheless, that's exactly what this letter is. Well, while you're there, I want to just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, perhaps like never before, I, I ask that you speak this morning and just use me as your microphone. Empower me with your Holy Spirit. Fresh this morning. Let your word, let me be faithful to your word, not overlooking what your word teaches, the wholeness, the fullness of your word. And then, Lord, do the work that you must do in the hearts of our congregation. We remember that Paul preached, but you gave Lydia ears to hear, a heart that was opened. And so this morning I'm asking that you give the congregation the ears to hear, an open heart. The Lord's, the whole thing this morning, as with every morning that we are here, Lord, you speak through the word, you speak through me, and then Holy Spirit, you speak in the hearts. Let this not be an audible moment only, but an internal call from the power of your word. Your word has power. In this church in Corinth, there were men who were gifted in speaking. They were very gifted at rhetoric, but don't let your service this morning here as we are here to worship you to simply be just good speaking, just hearing and not hearing with our hearts. Lord, let us hear with our hearts. Let this be the power. Show the power. Let us see the power of your word as it transforms us. So that our lives are different. Do that work, Lord. Amen. The title of today's message is Forgiving and Comforting the Sinner. Forgiving and Comforting the Sinner. The Bible teaches us to forgive and comfort the sinner. We know verses like, love covers a multitude of sins. We remember the famous story. Any of you who are going to the Fort Lauderdale Christmas pageant will see it. Spoiler alert. Will see it displayed in a beautiful uh, play and on stage where the woman who's caught in the act of adultery from John seven fifty three through eight eleven. Remember the story where Jesus says to the Pharisees as they threw her down in shame, Jesus says, who of you is without sin? Let him cast the first stone. Remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, remove the beam from your own eye so that you might see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Certainly we know the verse, judge not lest you be judged by the same standard in which you're judging another person. The greatest or second greatest command only to loving God is loving your neighbor as yourself. Romans 2.4 says the kindness of God leads people to repentance. The Bible teaches us to forgive and comfort sinners. All these verses are in the Bible, right? Are we not all sinners and 
standing in need of grace, God's grace, God's exceeding grace. Remember the story where Peter asked Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother? As many as seven times, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Or 70 times, just depending on what you believe is the original Greek there. Nevertheless, the point is, forgive him way more. And the very next story is a parable of a man who couldn't pay back an unpayable debt. It was a debt that was unpayable, completely unpayable. And that that person who wouldn't forgive his brother or who wanted forgiveness from the master wouldn't forgive his brother of a far less and, and very easily paid debt. Jesus is teaching us to forgive others. We're to forgive them. And not only are we to forgive them, but we are to comfort them with the gospel that God continuously forgives those who confess their sins. If, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't these Bibles, aren't these truths in Scripture? And the answer is an unequivocal yes. But it's not an unqualified yes. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said once, we have somehow got hold of the idea that error is only that which is outrageously wrong. And we do not seem to understand that the most dangerous person of all is the one who does not emphasize the right thing. I want to emphasize this point this morning. The individual Christian and the Christian church as a whole must not excuse must not condone and unfortunately must not celebrate sin in their individual lives and sin in the church as a way of demonstrating the gospel. We'll read that again. The individual Christian and the Christian church as a whole must not excuse, condone, or even celebrate sin in their lives or in the church as a whole as a way of demonstrating the gospel. Uh, let me read a brief passage by a gospel coalition writer named Dan Doriani to help explain what I mean by this. He, he's speaking about what is called broken jargon. Um, this is very popular. You hear it in a lot of Christian songs. And you hear it in a lot of Christian coffee shops. And you hear it in a lot of Christian bookstores. It, it's the word broken. I'm broken. Uh, Christian, let me just, for a moment, let me give you a little wisdom. This is not my wisdom, it's God's. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Ask the question, is broken... Define the way that it's often defined, language of the Bible. Let me just read this. Quote, unquote, the word broken, says Doriani, is an interesting case. In my circles, perhaps not yours, certain pastors and teachers often tell their people they are broken or need to face their brokenness. Without completing a study of Hebrew and Greek terms, it may enough... It may be enough to say that broken typically appears between 100 to 200 times in our English translations and that the sense is almost always negative, often sharply negative. To be broken is to be useless, i.e. a broken bow. You ever tried to shoot a bow and arrow? Well, no, because you don't live in Mississippi and you don't hunt. But if you did, it's broken. You're not going to shoot anything. In other words, you're useless. Or to be devastated, defeated, or despairing, as many passages show, e.g. Exodus 6, 9, 1 Samuel 2, 10, Psalm 31, 12, 69, 20, 102, 23, Job 17, 1, 31, 22. 
going on. He says, I believe broken has a positive sense. One time in the Bible, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Broken hearted is also used uh, positive in times of Psalm 34, 18 and 109, 16, 147, 3, Isaiah 61, 1. But these senses mean... Broken is a proper response to sin, which leads to God's grace and restoration. He says there, there's three problems when we use this word broken. First, broken takes on meanings that aren't biblical. So we sometimes hear a person glorifying in his brokenness. I feel so broken. And what they seem to mean is that they grieve their sin, but in an odd way... They seem to have a prideful ring as if one is glorifying their humility. I, I like Christian hip-hop. By the way, anybody else like Christian hip-hop and feel that when they're listening to it, they have to explain that that's Christian? My father-in-law walked, walked out into the garage the other day and I was listening to Christian hip-hop. And I immediately felt guilty. I'm just listening to it for the articles. You know, I was like, immediately I said, I'm, this is Christian, don't worry. But, but that's a big theme in Christian hip-hop about brokenness. And it's almost like, yeah, but when are you going to get fixed? And there is this idea that we, by using the word broken, we're being so humble. But that we're also excusing our sin. Because we're broken after all. By the way, what does broken mean? It means useless. It means I can't, you, you can't expect me to work. I'm broken. Kellen got this little car it's so cool, it just transforms. It, it was running around, and all of a sudden, it was driving around, and then it was running around when it turned into a transformer. I'd never seen anything like that. If I would have had one of those when I was a kid, I wouldn't be up here today. It was incredible. But it didn't have batteries in it. So it didn't work at all. It did nothing. It just sat there. Christian broken no no scripture says you're fixed if any man be in christ he is a new creation behold the old has passed away and the new has come you're fixed and when you are broken don't glorify in your brokenness, be ashamed. My first point this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn it up to 1 Corinthians 5. My first point is simply this, that the church ought to mourn egregious sin committed by its members. 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The word I want to pull out of that passage just right there for a moment. We're going to read through the entire chapter. I want to bring that word ought. I want to bring it out of the passage. The word ought. It is, it is the hinge that this entire little first section, these first couple verses, swings on. The word ought isn't actually in the Greek either. But all of the English translations assume that the syntax of the sentence warrants the usage in our English translations. The New American Standard Bible says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. In other words, you ought to have mourned. NIV says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? A rhetorical question, assuming that you ought to have gone into mourning. And then the English Standard Version just simply says, ought you not to have mourned over your sin? Paul is astounded, and we're going to talk about what this sin is in a moment. 
that the holy standard set for the church doesn't even meet the low moral standard of the world, i.e. what a church ought to be. So, so what's going on here? In the church, there is a man in their midst. Now remember, this is being read publicly, but there is a person in the midst who has a sort of sexual immorality that not even non-Christians would permit. In other words, at the water cooler in your secular job, at your secular job, even the bad people, even the unsaved people would say, hey, that ain't right. What's going on? A man is committing incest with his father's wife. Now, either the father, there's, there's a couple possibilities. The father may have died. We don't know. It's possible that the father died. And now he has taken his father's wife to be his wife. Which I still think we're all pretty squeamish about that. Or his father has divorced her. And he now takes her. As his own wife. But this is going on in a church. Now, a lot of young people, too, in the church today, they, they think, you know, we need to go back to the old church because the old church had everything right. No. Listen to what's going on. There is a man who has taken for his wife. The word have there means to have her as his own wife. His father's wife. C.S. Lewis spoke about two types of natural laws. He spoke about those laws which are impossible to break. The law of gravity. Or excuse me. the, the Yeah, right. So laws of, of gravity. Uh, law of when water freezes. So on and so forth. None of us can break the law of gravity. We're all bound to it. But then there are laws which are possible to break, but they're still natural laws. And they're laws we can break, but we ought not to break, i.e. selfishness. And Paul is saying here, within the general standard of morality amongst Christians and even pagans, the low moral standard of pagans, this is something that ought not to be done. And yet it's going on in a church. And not only is it going on in a church, but they're proud about it why are they proud what, what does that mean are they proud that this man is being incestuous what they are proud about is they are wallowing in the idea of their brokenness and the gospel's power to forgive yes the gospel is the power of god but it does not give us license to remain sinful and broken. Church was boasting about this. They were, they were proud that this was going on in their midst. He says, a man has his father's wife. You're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Lewis goes on to say, while we know that the church has a high moral standard and that the world has a low moral standard, it doesn't mean that there aren't overlapping times. He says this, I know that some people say the idea of a law of nature or decent behavior known to all men is unsound because different civilizations and different ages have had quite different moralities. But this is not true. There have been differences between their moralities, but these have never amounted to anything like a total difference. If anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teaching of, say, the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, what will really strike him will be how very like they are to each other and to even our own. He says, think of a country, try to imagine a country where people were admired for running away in battle. Or where a man felt around of, or, or felt proud of double-crossing all the people in his life who had been kindest to him. You might just as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. 
The point is that everywhere you find human beings living in community with one another, you find similar, if not the very same, moral laws of what ought to have been done by human or ought what or what ought to be done by human beings. And Paul is just asking the church, who is no less than keepers of the morals of society, but so much more as the example of holiness in the world, as Jesus said, salt and light of the world, they're not even keeping the low standard. The Corinthian church has denied a very obvious moral law that is accepted in every culture, namely that incest ought not to be done. And they're doing it because they are misunderstanding and misapplying the gospel. That the gospel, according to them, means never confronting sin or the sinner. We, we, we have this idea in the church that you never say that a person sinning because that's unloving it's not nice nice is that what we're called to be we're called to be nice how can we be both nice and the pillar and foundation of the truth The truth is almost never nice. It's not even concerned with such a category. It is objective. It does not care about nice. When I look in the mirror and I see I'm overweight, when I step on the scale and I see I am overweight, it is the truth. It may hurt my feelings, but it has nothing to do with nice. And Paul is saying, oh my gosh, you who have eyes to see, of all people living in the world... Ought, ought to be the very ones who are saying this is wrong. But because you've misunderstood and misapplied the gospel of Jesus Christ, you assume that it is holy. You assume that you're doing the right thing by letting it go on. He could have added one more word in that passage, which I'll add. Shame on you. Shame on you. This is an embarrassment. The people of God have embarrassed not only God, but they embarrass moral society. Are you kidding me? Says Paul. Paul says here, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Look at the next verses. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul says, I don't need to know all the facts. And that's what we do the first time we get caught in our sin. We, we start to excuse our sin. And we give all of the reasons why what we are doing and what we have done is different. It's, it's, what, it's, it's, it's what Eve and Adam did. Eve, oh, oh, the serpent. Him. Adam. Her and you. You gave me her. Her did bad. Me? I'm good. I didn't do anything. You did God. You did Eve. Woman, you gave me. She gave me the whatever the fruit was, according to Eve. According to CNN, it could have been a banana. I don't know if you've seen that commercial. Paul says, I'm absent in the body, but I pronounce judgment on you. I'm not, I'm not even there. I don't need to see it. I know that no matter who the man is, this is wrong and it ought not to be done. This isn't permissible. It ought not to be done in our non-Christian churches. And it ought not to be done in normal, secular Organization. 
He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present. What, what does he mean just by the by? What does he mean by spirit? He means the word. He does not mean that there is some kind of omnipresent, ubiquitous spirit that has been able to transcend space-time continuum. It's not supernatural. Paul's spirit is with us today. Right here. In this book. May it be even condemning us. He says, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I am almost positive. I haven't read every book that Macintosh has written. But I am almost positive that in every church, Gary Macintosh is the how to build a church and how to grow a church, all of these books. I am almost positive that in church books on how to grow the church, that statement, that verse is not in there. Want to grow your church? Begin with this passage. The next time that that person is with you in the body, deliver them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Who wants to join that church? <laughs> what do we do when that happens? We leave the church, don't we? We're out of there. Hand them over to Satan? What does that mean? Paul just means this. He just means remove them from the graces of being in the local church body. You know, there's a side note to this, just kind of a side application. For those of you who ask the question, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? No. But, but, but let me ask you this question. Do you want to play fast and loose with your salvation? Everywhere where the Bible does address being together with God's people, like in Hebrews 10, 25, forsake not the assembling of yourselves, even more so as you see that day, the day of Jesus' return, quickly approaching, immediately it's followed by a warning against apostasy, which means to give up the faith. That's so we stay out of our churches, but what, what Paul is saying is, yeah, but... There may be something else going on. The church ought to remove egregious sinners who will not repent. It is the opposite of church growth. That's what we care about, though. We're Americans, after all. We measure things in greater quantity. We're capitalists minded. The more you have, the more valuable you are to society. The more you have, the more successful you are. People tell me all the time, God's going to give you a big church one day. Oh gosh, I hope not. There was, a, there was a theologian who said, more money, more problems. I don't remember who that was. Big church. But what they're saying is that's God's blessing on you. Maybe a curse. God doesn't care about church growth if, if, if what is lost in the process is your holiness. Better that it be a church of one that is holy than a church of 1,000 that don't have the guts to deal with sin. We see this, it's not just in, you know, it's, it's common in a lot of churches. We can't, we can't discipline this guy, why? He just gave $100,000 for the new building. Then don't build the building. Give him his money back. Or just hold on to it until he says he wants it back. Get rid of him. Don't build the building. Church isn't a building. The building will one day crumble. Jesus made this point. He, said, he went over to the temple. He said, you see this temple? Eh, knock it down. Knock it down. It took decades to build it. It's, so, it's worth more than anything. Tear it down. Jesus says, go ahead, tear it down. I'll, I'll reconstruct it in three days. Now, by the way, <laughs> good thing they didn't take him literally on it because guess what would have happened? It would have been still crumbled had he come back in three days because his point wasn't about buildings. What mattered was the real temple. 
His body. Your temple. The temple of God. This church. The temple of God. These people. You focus on how people dress when they come to church. Just so long as you have clothes on, I couldn't care less. I hear people tell me all the time, oh, I didn't have anything nice to wear. Who cares? I don't care. I don't care. Come, come. Just, just be clothed. And wear some shoes. I mean, if you don't have shoes, it's fine. Just come in. Just wash your feet. Or ask Johan to do it. I, I mean, to, right? Isn't that, isn't that a job of deacons? I don't know. <laughs> I don't hope it's not for pastors. Oh, no. Jesus washed feet. Oh, boy. Wear shoes is my point. But, but God doesn't care about pretty buildings and big buildings. He cares about are you holy? Paul is ashamed of this church. He comes to the church and he, he, he comes to the church and he doesn't go, wow, wow. <laughs> oh, look at that screen. That didn't even work. Whoa, look at that baptismal pool. Are those real rocks? No. Wow, look over there. What is that? Is that a speaker well? Yeah, it doesn't even have speakers in it. Whoa. Stained glass, huh? Yeah, it leaks. No, he goes in and he says, tell me about the standing of your people. Do they really love God? Paul couldn't have been a Baptist. Gary, that was for you. Paul could not have been a Baptist. Because he didn't come in and ask numbers, noses, and nickels. He came in and he asked holiness. And he was ashamed of the church. He says, your boasting is not good. Verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That, that was a saying. Okay, it, it, it was a saying. I don't know. I'm sure, my Nana, you probably have some saying in Trinidadian culture, like you know, a little bit of rum rums the whole cake or something. And Papa... <laughs> A little bit of sour cream works its way through the potato or something like that. And other stereotypes um, that are socially unacceptable. One night we had a little bit of just sinister fun. I don't remember when it was, but I, I started talking to the, the church. I don't remember what it was, but we were just talking about all the different sayings. that Everybody has different sayings for the, the same, you know, it means the same thing, but it's just different. Rudy talks about how many beans are in a soup and something like that and my family talks about how much grits are burnt. Paul says, don't you know that leaven works its way? They were, they were a bread culture. Don't you know that leaven works its way through the bread? Like if you put a little bit in there, it, 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 does the, it, it destroys the whole thing. Here's the point. A little bit of poison will work its way in the whole glass. If I just put a little tiny, little, just a little tiny drip of hemlock in your glass of water, would you still drink it? No. In fact, you might even say... You might even say that that glass of water is useless. Should be thrown out. Leaven. Leaven is actually yeast. It's living. And it speeds up the fermentation process of bread. It does it also in beer. Again, couldn't be a Baptist. But it... it Poisons. And so what he's saying here is good for bread, bad for the church. Good to have leaven in your bread, bad in the church. You cannot poison the church. Don't poison the church. He says, you are supposed to be unleavened. Look at what he says here. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now he takes a general expression and he brings it into the religious realm, the Christian realm. And he hearkens back to the Passover. And the Jews were commanded not to leaven, put leaven in their bread, because leavening takes time. And he was, they were moving out of Egypt in haste. And when God ordered that the children of Israel, when he finally ordered cosmically their deliverance... He commanded them not to put leaven in their bread because they didn't have time. They were moving in haste. Time to, time to get out. And so every year annually at the Passover, they would celebrate by eating unleavened bread. They still do that. Anybody ever eat a matzo ball? Oh, it's so good. It's like condensed carbohydrates. There's no gluten in it, I don't think, because I think gluten comes after you put the yeast in. 
But, but who cares? Because it's not about bread. Paul says, you are to be pure. And he says, guess what? Because we have a new Passover lamb. Christ is our Passover lamb. He says, you're really unleavened. Why am I really unleavened? Unleavened simply meaning pure. Why, how am I pure? Holy, morally, spiritually, righteous before God. Completely blameless. All my sins washed white as snow. You're unleavened. How can you have leaven in you? Paul says, you're really, because of our Passover lamb, you really are actually unleavened. You're pure. We're justified in Christ. We're justified. We're forgiven for our sins once and for all. The blood and the body of Jesus Christ has made us holy in God's sight. And Paul says then, let us therefore celebrate the festival. What festival? The old Passover? No, the new Passover with a new lamb. A lamb who has made us pure forever. And it's not about what goes into the body. It's what comes out of the body that makes a man pure. Don't celebrate the old or the new festival with the old leaven. What type of leaven? The leaven of malice and evil. Uh, the word there for malice actually means something like impurity. So he's keeping up with the analogy. He says instead, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And the word sincerity there means more like purity. In other words, here's what he's saying. To make this very clear. Because this is a very difficult passage. He's simply saying, Jesus has made you once and for all pure. You're unleavened. God doesn't look at you and see your sin anymore. You're holy. You're forgiven. If you have Christ. But he doesn't. You're, you're forgiven. You're unleavened. You already are. You're already forgiven. It, you're already pure in God's sight. There is therefore now. When? Now. Now. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? We're unleavened. We're pure. How? According to the Passover lamb. Were the people inside the house, according to the Passover custom, on the first Passover, if they didn't put the blood of the lamb over their door, what would happen to them? They'd die. They had to have the blood. Does that mean that the people inside were pure in and of themselves? No. They had to have the blood covering them in order to be pure. But now that Christ has come, once and for all, no more lambs need to be slaughtered. You are forgiven. You are holy. So then why do we have sin still in the church? Because our justification before God is not the same. As our sanctification in this life. One is instantaneous. Namely our justification. But our growth and our sanctification. Our growth and our holiness. Trying to be more Christ like. Is a process you will have until the day you die. Paul says this. Church. Be what you already are. Be on earth what you are in heaven. Holy. Holy. There's an unfortunate thing that's happening with our honeybee population. Any tree huggers like me in the, in the church? There you go. You're seeing. I taught you well, son. There's a thing called colony collapse disorder, and usually it's one of three things that mainly cause it. There's mites, there's chemicals, or there's uh, uh, viruses, and it gets into one bee, and that bee takes it back into the hive, and it goes to the entire hive, and the bees die. One third of the things that we eat come from honeybees, so it matters that honeybees are dying out. <laughs> it matters for us now. How bad would this world be if the church just started dying out? <laughs> We're already seeing it. Can't go to any church today and hear the truth. Because pastors want to grow their churches. 
so they don't tell the man who's living in sin. You're living in sin. Church doesn't have the guts to tell that person. Brother or sister, until you repent, you are not a part of this body. And I love you. But until you repent, you're not a part of this body. Paul said, hand him over to Satan. Get him away from the church. They don't get the protections of the, of the church. And we don't have the guts to tell anybody anything. Because we have bought into the false claim that the Bible is only concerned with grace. Just like the Corinthian church. The American church does the same thing. It's all about gospel. No requirements. Live however you want. Come how you are. Stay how you are. There's a book called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. You should read it. Really tiny. Listen to me, church. Paul is warning you, and he's warning the Corinthians, if you don't get sin out of your church, it'll destroy your church. Just like it destroys bee colonies, and just like it ferments the bread. If you see sin and you don't deal with it, it will destroy it. Now, Paul says, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Which letter? He's talking about a letter that he wrote sometime before. We don't have that letter. It's not missing. It's, we just don't have it. It's, it. In other words, it's not missing because it's not a part of the canon. A lot of times people say it's missing. No, it's not missing. It's it was never a part of the Bible. So it's not missing. We just don't have it. He says, I, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Oh, we just got dinner. Paul says, don't even eat with them. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You'll note that the, the first thing that happens here is that Paul broadens the list of reasons why you ought to disassociate yourself from a person. It's not just the simple issue of sexual immorality, but it also includes greed. People are greedy. What does greedy mean? It means they're not sharing. They don't care for God's people. Here. They come and take and they don't give. Which is like 90% of every church. You ever, you ever read these books? Just, just start going on to Tom Rainer's site and read like the staggering statistics of how the average church member is. Around the United States. But it's also reviling, it's also idolatry. What is reviling? It's slanderous speech. Are they slandering someone? Are they saying evil and wicked things about someone in the church? What about drunkenness? Or being deceptive for selfish gain? That's what swindling means. Do they deceive people? One thing that we must never do is assume that one passage is the end-all be-all to a matter in the scriptures. All of theology is the study of what the whole Bible teaches on a given topic. Some in the church today assume that the only text on church discipline is Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Well, you got to follow this process. Okay, your brother sins against you. Go to him. Okay, brother, one to one. We're keeping this quiet. Hey, listen, you sinned against me. And your brother says to you, I don't think I did. All right, now go take two or three along. Hey, brother, come over here. And brother, listen, we all together, they're not, they're not there to, to be mediators. You need to understand that. They're not there to be mediators. They're not arbitrators. They're not saying, okay, can we all just get along? All right, you did bad and you did bad. They're actually there to be witnesses, meaning, brother, we are all together. You have done wrong. That's what it means to be witnesses. It means to give a testimony. It means that we all affirm you've done wrong. Well, they, 
That guy tells you, I'm not listening to you. Now you have to take it before the church. Paul's not afraid to take it before the church. This letter is read to the entire church. This man is not mentioned by name, but everyone knew who the dude was who was sleeping with his dad's ex-wife. He says, take it to the church. Why? So now the whole church might be witnesses. All together. Not debating whether or not it's right or wrong or whose side. We ought to all, Paul has asked the church, ought we not all to be mourning that this is going on? And there ought to be agreement. And they ought to all come together. And if that person says no on that occasion, says I will not repent, that means they stop, not confess, Stop doing what they're doing. Jesus says they got to go. But Paul expedites that. He says, You got a man in your church who is proud of sexual sin, get him out. Titus 3:10, Paul says, Do you have somebody who's sowing discord in your church? That means division. That means they're dividing. That means they're, they are actually doing exactly what Paul has been talking about as we've been learning for the first four chapters in 1 Corinthians. They are actually making much about one man over another. And Paul says to Titus in 3.10, you have someone who's sowing discord? Warn him once, warn him twice, get rid of him. Oh, but did they follow the steps? No, listen to me. Because scripture doesn't only speak about church discipline in Matthew. There are things that you don't play around with in the church. And when something is poisoning the whole body, listen to me, it must be gotten rid of as of first importance. Nothing is more important. Finally, an amen. I understand this isn't a passage you amen. I'm sure the Corinthians didn't amen it. Paul says to them, Here's my issue. I am not saying that you're to be a church that does not welcome the harlot. I am not saying that you are not to be a church that does not welcome the drug abuser or drug dealer or drunkard who is coming in to repent, be welcoming. What Paul is saying, he says, I'm not, I am not saying that you are never to associate with people who don't have their stuff together. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. In other words... Our day-to-day business, our day-to-day life is around people who are not Christians. Um, can I just make a political statement? Christians are confused. They think that whoever they vote for has to be a, con- a, con- a complete Christian or they won't vote for him. Guys, what are you thinking? Oh, I can't vote. Why? Because a person, neither of the people are Christians. So What? Paul says, I'm not telling you not to associate with lost people. You'd have to leave the world. In other words, leave the world. You'd have to be unproductive in the world. You couldn't get anything done. You ever seen when Christians come out and they try to say, oh, we're going to boycott Miramax films. Only to realize that in boycotting Miramax, they got to boycott Disney. Only to realize that Disney owns everything, even the Cheerios that they're eating. There's always that connection, you know. I don't wear Nikes. They're made in sweatshops. Now let me put on my Louis Vuitton bag and I'm leaving. You couldn't live in this world. You you couldn't live in this world if the world had to be perfect to associate with it. And Paul says that's not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is the church. Don't associate with the one who says I'm a Christian and doesn't live like it. You know what this is? It is the moment where you tell everyone, hold me accountable. People want to get baptized here all the time and they don't want to be a member of this church. I tell them, go to the church that you want to be a member of and get baptized there. Well, but it's so beautiful. I I don't care. 
They were baptizing people in the Jordan River. It's filthy, full of bacteria. (laughs) Just like that pool. Anyway, it's just a moment where you say, I'm going to be brother. Hold me to the standard, the holy standard that God requires for his people. We are to be like Christ. I have been, I have died, buried in the likeness of Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. I'm your brother. We have one father. We have the same brother Christ. I'm going to look like Christ. And now I can go to you and say, brother, sister, you're you're sinning. We, we do this. We get this confused all the time, Christians. Oh, I was on Facebook, and I heard this person saying that homosexuality is okay, and I told them homosexuality is wrong, it's a sin, and they told me they don't care, they don't believe in God, but I told them God. Great. great. I mean, you understand that trying to get a gay person to not be gay is like arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic when it's sinking. Got to make it look pretty up here. Woo! Gayness isn't their problem. Rebellion is. The straight person in the chat room, they're on the same ship. I said ship. I saw a couple of you like. (gasps) Saw him with that new fancy haircut. Now he's using bad language. If you get gay men and women straight and not to the cross, you send straight people to hell. They don't need that as a first importance. That will work itself out. What they need is to repent. They are rebelling against God. Paul says, what do I have to do with the lost person? God will judge them. God will take care of them. Listen. Listen to what he's saying. Because this might shock you. God will take care of the lost people and what they're doing now. But you, church, are to take care of the house while the master is away. How? Is it not inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Here, listen, listen to how emphatic this is. Purge the evil person from among you. Sadly, that doesn't happen in our churches. So sad. We feel we don't have the right to do it. We've heard all the other verses about judge not, lest you be judged, and we're to be gracious, and we're to forgive 70 times 7, and we don't deal with the responsibility of keeping God's house holy. You say, okay, so what? So we don't get to experience the forgiveness. And the comfort that actually God has intended at the end of all church discipline. Paul doesn't say, hate the man. doesn't say, I wish that that man never came to Christ again. He doesn't say those things. He doesn't say, I'll never forgive him. I'll never forgive him. I'll hate him to the rest, to the day I die for what he did to the body of God. He doesn't say that. He says discipline him so that his soul might be saved. Hand him over to to Satan. That means separate him from the body. Make him, if he is really a believer, make her, if she is really a believer, feel the weight that the church as one body says, brother, sister, you are sinning. You must repent. Why? 
so that their flesh might be destroyed, but their soul might be saved. Better that they suffer a little now, better that they suffer a little here, than that their entire soul be cast into hell because they would not repent. At the very beginning of this sermon, I said that all of the grace passages are unequivocal, but they are not unqualified. God is unconditional love. He is not unconditional love. That's why you wear a cross. It costs something. You will not get to heaven on meeting no condition. The condition is faith. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourself. You want to be God's, you must be saved by faith. That's the condition. If you're not meeting it this morning, you are not saved. Well, the church did what Paul told them to do. In a twist of events, they actually obeyed. They got off of their cans... They put away all of the other things that didn't matter, and they got this taken care of. And by the way, notice that he didn't say, this is the job of the elders. He put it on everyone. Oh, I don't know the dude. He put it on everyone. You know what happened? second letter that he sends to the Corinthian church he says now if anyone has caused pain he's caused it not to me but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you you know what happens in a lot of churches where there's issues and there's sin we think that they're only hurting themselves they're actually hurting the entire church you know what people do they see that there's sin going on in the church, and they see that the church isn't dealing it, at it or dealing with it, and they all go and gossip and say, oh, that church over there, full of a bunch of weak people. That church over there, they don't deal with their sin. That church over there, they're lunatics. They don't know what they're doing. Paul says, this person who was living amongst you and you did not mourn, you permitted it to go on. <laughs> the whole community now thinks you're a joke because you can't get it right. They caused it to the whole body. He says, it's not just to me, it was to all of you. But for such a one, oh, listen, this is the beauty. This punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Did you hear the words? The title of this sermon was that the church is to forgive and comfort the sinner. Is that not unequivocally true? The church is to forgive and comfort the sinner. They are to bring them back in. Are they not? Is it not unequivocally true? Yes. But it is not without qualification. The man repented. He stopped his sinning. As disgusting as it was. And Paul now says, receive him back as a brother. Church discipline isn't kicking people out of the church. It's not about sin sniffing. We don't need people to run around and peek in windows. But when a sin is public, when a sin is serious, and when a sin is unrepented of, the only way for the church to be forgiving and comforting is to subject that person to real church discipline so that they might repent 
and be reconciled not only to the body, but to the Lord Jesus himself. Let's pray. What a heavy word your word has given to us today. Lord, as a church, there will be times where we enter into seasons of church discipline. Give us courage, Lord, not to be sin sniffers, but where, where sin is blatant, where it is unrepented of, where it is serious. Oh, Lord, we are all accountable. Give us courage, knowing, Lord, that if we as a body agree to hand someone over to Satan to, to remove them from our church, that there can be real hope for reconciliation, not just with us, but with you. It was you, Lord, who told the prophet, it's not you they hate. God, it's so easy for us to look at this, this example today that we've read and think that this man just loves sex. What that man loved was his, the idol of himself over you. Father, the bigger issue at hand was that that man rejected you. And so, Lord, there are sinners here today who are living in great sin. Help them to understand that their rebellion is not a rebellion against the local church. When they say, the church made me or hurt me, they made me sad, they, they hurt my feelings, let them see that it's a rebellion against you. And let them demonstrate their reconciliation with you by their reconciliation with your church. Amen.